Kuyob Nakuhot. And uh, two months ago yesterday, as a result of an automobile accident which had my jaw broken in three places, my jaw's been wired shut up until nine days ago. So if you have difficulty listening to me, it's not to any slight regional accent you may think I have. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely attributed to my jaw. You know, at the last time I was in Kentucky, uh, well, the last time I, the very first, I got sober young, I was in my 20s, I got sober, and uh, I did a lot of young people's conferences, but the very first big people's conference I spoke at was here four years ago, the Rule 62 conference, and the very first big people, now I guess I get a little more grayer and I don't get invited to young people's anymore, I just come, <laughs> come to mainstream AA, which I certainly love. Uh, my home group is the McKean Street Miracle Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet at St. Agnes Hospital, brought him, brought him to King Street in South Philadelphia, seven nights a week at seven o'clock. If you're ever in the neighborhood, we'd love to have you. Uh, I'm not there seven nights a week, personalities, but I'm there a couple nights a week. I go to other groups too, but I'm always there for the business meeting. Chapter five of the big book tells me what I'm supposed to do. I will tell you in a general way what my life was like as an active alcoholic, what happened to me, and what my life is like today as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was born and raised in a very blue-collar, very ethnic neighborhood in Philadelphia. You know, uh, I'm one of, uh, I got seven brothers and sisters, you know, and Cliff talked about that last night. You know, every nine months there's a baby, so uh, we call that Myrish twins, so I guess <laughs> I am the third oldest out of a set of octuplets, I guess. There's, there's eight of us, like, within, like, almost ten years, you know, there's a ten-year gap between them. My mom was pregnant for nine years, God bless her, you know. <laughs> we had no booze in all my house growing up. My father did not drink. My mother could not drink. My mother suffered from a history of mental illness and abuse, prescription medication, so we had no booze at all in the house. My grandparents lived around the corner from us, and that's where all the family functions were held, you know, the christenings, the parties, the graduations, and things like that. They had a bar in the basement. And that's where I had my very first drink. I was just a kid. I was young. I didn't get drunk the first time I drank, but I remember that drink. It was Ballantyne beer. And I remember that because Ballantyne used to sponsor the Phillies. And I remember going to County MX Stadium with my father in the old scoreboard in right center field. And I didn't get drunk the first time I drank, but what I did, I was running around the bar in the basement, polishing off the half empties. Or the hair falls, depending on your perspective. <laughs> I was passing off, and my uncles were saying, hey, look at him, look at Bobby. And that's what I craved, the attention. I never felt a part of. My entire life, even into early recovery, I never felt a part of. And that's pretty tough to do when you got, like, you know, there's ten people living in a small three-bedroom home, but I never felt a part of. My drinking really took off in high school. Um, I, I went to a private Jesuit high school. Most of the kids in the neighborhood went to a local diocesan school. And right away I felt kind of different because most of the kids who went to this school were from affluent families from the suburbs. This is me and a couple of the dirt balls in the neighborhood. We went there. <laughs> and we had a reputation because we used to walk to school, you know. So these kids, you know, they're getting dropped off by their parents in their luxury automobiles and mean guys from the neighborhood were inside robbing their lockers. <laughs> and I knew that was wrong, you know, the way I was brought up. You know, I, I, the values were instilled. I knew that was wrong, but I did it anyway. Because, you know, we had a certain reputation because we walked to school, and I had a lot of nicknames, and one of those nicknames was Crazy Coil. So I would do things, and my gut that knew I w it was wrong, I was uncomfortable doing it, but I did it anyway because I didn't want to disappoint anybody because it came to be expected. <laughs> I was your entertainment.
And I remember his freshman year at the prep. We're there about you know two or three weeks. It's in the fall. There's a football. Uh, there's a way football game, and we run a bus, and there's alcohol, and there's fighting, and there's police activity. Just you know all the running and all stuff that goes with that. And so that we was ordered to go see the disciplinarian the following school day Monday. So me and there were about nine of us lined up. And it was just me and another kid from the neighborhood. We're the only freshmen. Everyone else is upperclassmen. And the disciplinarian came right up to us. And he said, what's with you guys? You guys here two weeks, you get caught up in this jackpot. I just shrugged my shoulders. Just, you know, father, just one of them things, you know. And what it was, it didn't take me long to size up situations. I didn't hang out with the athletes. I wasn't one. I didn't hang out with the brainiacs. I wasn't one of them either. I hung around with the guys who were drinking and doing their other things and just causing trouble. That's who I went to hang out with, you know. And uh, that would be the story of my life, you know. When it came time to graduate from the prep, I really, well, let me back up a bit. My sophomore year, now this school is located in a pretty rough area in Philadelphia, North Philadelphia. The school's on 18th Street. Four blocks away is the subway. At the end of the day, these kids would take the trolley the four blocks to catch the subway because they were scared to walk through the neighborhood. Three blocks away on the corner of 15th and Gerard was a bar called the Ebony Showcase Lounge. When I was a sophomore, I was a regular at the Ebony, and I went there for a couple of different reasons. You know, they had dancers, you know, they had cold beer. But a lot of time, again, it was the reputation that I thought I had, you know, a legend in my own mind. I would I would stroll out to Rod Avenue and sit at the bar and order drinks, and these guys would serve me. I'm, what, 16? I look like I'm 12 in my little blazer. They, they thought if I was crazy enough to be in a bar, they might as well serve me. <laughs> But I was a show-off. That's why I was there. And I went there at times I really didn't want to go because I went to show off. And I can now tell people every time I strolled out to Rod Avenue or sat in the Ebony, I was terrified. But I couldn't let anybody else know. Again, I was playing the roles, which I would again do until early recovery. When it came time to graduate from the prep, I really had no desire to further my education. It kind of took my parents off because we didn't have much growing up. They made a lot of sacrifices to send me there. And my options were limited, you know, I couldn't get my own apartment, I had no skills, I had no money, wasn't going away from school. The only other option left was enlisting in the service, and that's what I did. And that really wasn't a bright move, because back then nobody else was going. In fact, some people, they was heading north, but I, I enlisted, I got sent overseas, and that's when my drinking really took off. I never messed around with other substances. There was a lot of guys from my neighborhood who got, went over and got whacked on certain things, but I never messed around with that stuff. But it's definitely a, a, a drunk by this point. I'm overseas, I've been there about three or four months, and several good friends of mine got killed. And I didn't know how to handle that, you know? Because in my family, we didn't talk about nothing. It was all surface stuff, you know? Uh, and once you moved out of the house, you were no longer privy to the secrets of the house, you know? Everything stayed within the walls of the house, and if you were unfortunate enough to live in the house, everything stayed inside you, you know? This is just the way it was. And not a shot at my folks, that's just reality, that's the way it was. So I didn't know how to handle this, you know? But I know booze numb the pain. And that's what I did. I would drink enough to numb the pain. And I didn't distinguish myself, but I didn't do badly either. I gave the bare minimum effort required to get by, and I was satisfied with that. My tour was up. I came home. I wound up taking a couple civil service exams. I enrolled in school, you know, in St. Joe's College, it's now university. And so I'm there, and uh, this morning I get a call, it's May, and towards the end of the semester, one of the guys in the neighborhood called me up and said, Bobby, the Phillies are playing this afternoon, would you be interested in going to the game? I said, okay, so I cut class, because I really wasn't setting the world on fire in the classroom either. <laughs> Again, give them, giving the bare minimum effort required to get by, I don't want any attention drawn to myself. So me and four other guys, uh, the Phillies have since moved, it's, uh, they're playing in South Philadelphia, the vet. We're sitting up on the 700 level, the top of the stadium, 
and it's an unusually hot day for May. And the sun's beating down, and I'm drinking that cheap watered-down beer they sell. And I told one of the guys that was with us, I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to run down in the field and meet one of the players. And they said, that's okay, Bobby. And they shrugged me off because another nickname I had was Bullshit Bob. I was like, I want to do this, I'm going to do this. I did that. I didn't do nothing. I drank. That's all I did. I made stories up. So, but I worked my way down to the old picnic area there, and I jumped over the fence. I ran out in right field, and the San Diego Padres were in town. And Dave Winfield was playing right field for the Padres. And I went out in right field, and I shook his hand. I said, hi, Dave. How you doing? And he looked at me, he said, brother, he said, what are you doing out here? And from behind him, I saw the guards come, and I said, Dave, I, I got to go now. So I, <laughs> so I start running towards the infield, and I want to slide into second base. But as I was approaching second base, there was guards coming from the third base side, and if I knew if I slid into the base, I'd get caught. So I turned around, and I start walking towards first base, and I'm, like, going to give myself up. And I'm about five, six feet away from the guard, and at the last second, I deked the guy, and I run out in the outfield. Now I'm running around like a lunatic. It seems like about 10 minutes, but it's probably closer to like two or three, right? Up on the scoreboard, they put Mr. Excitement. The place went nuts. <laughs> I had nowhere to go, though. I'm the, you know, the, the outfield walls like a 10 feet high, and I'm drunk, and I'm out of breath, and like nowhere to go, and I'm thinking about to get in second. I just gave up. I just stood there. I waited for them to come. And as they came up, you know, they, they were upset, the guards, and I knew that I was going to get a beating. As you were taking me off the field, I got a standing ovation from 37,000 people. Chuck <laughs> <laughs> McGraw was in the bullpen and gave me the thumbs up. Away they go. You know, that standing ovation, I knew I was going to get a beat in them. Guards could have beat on me all day. I didn't care. Because not only that, I had witnesses. I had them four guys from the neighborhood who were going to go back and talk about me. Because if I told that story, no one would ever believe me. So I knew that I was going to be able to live off the story for a little while. As they take me up to the bullpen, a Philadelphia police lieutenant came up to me. He said, what's the matter with you? He said, are you drunk? Are you high? I said, no, I'm just happy. Just happy to be here. <laughs> he said, well, you better get your happy ass out of the stadium. <laughs> so, so not only did he save me from getting a beating, but he saved me from getting arrested because that was kind of important because them civil service exams I took, like one of them panned out and couple months later, I got hired by the Philadelphia Police Department. <laughs> <laughs> they was hiring anybody back then. It was just nuts. <laughs> no. And uh, I was off to the races. <laughs> I wasn't even old enough to drink. The drinking age at that time still was in Pennsylvania. is 21. Jersey's right across the river. Something like you got here, like four years ago when I flew into the Cincinnati airport and I found out I was in Kentucky. <laughs> That we've, we got the same deal in Philadelphia. Jersey's right across the river, and I could be in Jersey quicker than other parts of Philadelphia. So I'm not even, the drinking age is 21, and Jersey's 18, and we just go over Jersey. But once I got on the job, I could drink wherever I want. I spent 10 years, my first 10 years, in a pretty rough area in North Philadelphia, and I would see the ravages of alcoholism and drug addiction day in, day out. And at the end of my tour, I would go to the bar with guys in my squad, and we'd drink. And... Uh, you know, I saw things that bothered me, but I couldn't tell my co-workers that because I didn't want to be thought less than. I wanted to be one of the boys. To the point where I even engaged in behaviors, I knew my gut was wrong, that I wasn't comfortable doing, but I did it anyway because the need for me to be accepted by others outweighed anything else. And whatever values or convictions I had went out the window, you know. And it was an ugly job, uh, but I loved it. I did did very well in it, and uh, drinking was part of the game back then. And, uh, you know what? The signs were on the wall. You know, I remember I came to work one day. There was a supervisor. He pulled me off to the side. He said, you know what, kid? He said, you're smart. You're going to go places. That booze is going to mess you up. 
one ear and not the other. It was at a family function. My uncle Jimmy was there. Jimmy was a supervisor on the job. He worked in another part, in another section, but he came up, he pulled me off to the side. He said, Bobby, I'm hearing stories about you. You can get yourself in the jackpot. You better slow down. One ear and not the other. A couple years later, when I got sober, I ran into my Uncle Jimmy, and I ran into that supervisor on two separate occasions in the realms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I realized at that point that they were trying to 12-step me. And when I talked to my uncle, I said, Jimmy, I said, how come you didn't tell me? He said, Bobby, I told you. He said, you just weren't ready yet. And it was just goes to show you that all the drinking and all the things, you know, were necessary for me. You know, for me, that happened to me for me to recognize that I had a problem. I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. I made my very first meeting in 1979. I don't tell people I went out because I really never came in, but I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> Show up at work one day, and uh, one of my coworkers is drunk, and the supervisor said, run him up to the unit. We had an EAP unit, and part of the EAP unit, they had, a, they had an AA meeting there, you know. And so I coming up the, coming down the driveway here, and it's a little house that sits on a porch. The name of the group is 369. And there's a guy sitting on his porch, his name was Eddie, Eddie M. And I pulled up and I said, Eddie, I'm dropping this guy off. I said, I'll be back at 4 o'clock to pick him up. He looked me dead in the eye. I said, kid, do you want to come in? I said, no, I don't. I was insulted that he even asked me. <laughs> I knew what alcoholics were. Alcoholics were those poor people I was dealing with day in, day out, you know. Uh, it was for you older guys, for you married guys, you guys with the three heads. You guys, they was, all had a problem, not me. I was a beer drinker. There was no way that you could be an alcoholic drinking beer. The only time I drank hard liquor was like on St. Paddy's Day or like New Year's Day or payday. But I was a beer drinker. <laughs> I was a beer drinker and there was no way that you could be an alcoholic, you know. I got sober a couple years later and Eddie was, Eddie, I was the first outside meeting I saw. Eddie was there and as soon as I came in, he smiled. He said, so kid, you finally came around. And like I said, I was the last guy to figure it out. So uh, my drinking was just nuts and... Uh, I was uh, 24 years old and I shot and killed a 15-year-old kid in line of work and it was just a really unavoidable situation. If you guys can identify, I know you get a lot of that going on here. It was just a terrible, terrible situation. And uh, a lot of people offered help to me and I just rejected everyone and I curled in the bottle for the next three years and that's what I did because I wound up getting sober when I was 27. And all the help that was extended to me, I rejected. I just was full of self-pity and you know, remorse and so my drinking took me to a lot of my nevers and one of those nevers is the use of a lot of substances I'd say I would never do this I would never do that you know I wound up getting promoted and transferred I was put in this position where I thought I needed to do certain things but I was drinking so my judgment was impaired and I started getting involved in other substances my drug history is very short it only lasted 17 months but it caused me enough pain to come in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and I think due to the fifth tradition, that's all I need to talk about that stuff. You know, you get the picture. So uh, it's just nuts. My personal life is a shambles, you know. Uh, I got supervisors, uh, you know, giving me a hard way to go. You know, my paperwork's not done. I'm using my sick time. Girl I'm living with at the time, she says, you know what, Bobby, when you, you're a pretty decent guy, but when you drink, you become an animal, you know, and everyone. It just got nuts. Guys weren't couple guys from work were kind of shying away from me because I was just in, engaging in like really risky behavior. I could have hurt other people. I was just nuts. And, uh, you know, but some people are just keeping that bay because I was using this story that happened to me a couple years before that. I was sitting home from work one day and there was an, uh, paper, an ad in the paper. It said alcohol problems, drug problems, depression, marital problems, thoughts of suicide. 
I was four out of five. <laughs> I was single. And I'm sure, and I'm sure, I'm sure if I was married, I'd been batting a thousand. And they talk about the moment of clarity or, or sanity, but as soon as it came, it quickly left, you know. But something made me cut that ad out, and I stuck it in my wallet. Memorial Day weekend, I'm sitting in this bar, guys from my squad were having a party. And one of the guys I was working with, uh, he decided that he had enough. He said, you know, I'm going home. He said, like, like we got to go in at midnight tonight and work. And I said, and so I'll tell you what, because I'll give you a ride home. Because I didn't think that I was as drunk as he was. So I get in my car, I'm driving. About two blocks away, I spot somebody on a bicycle coming towards me. And I decided I was going to show off my driving skills in front of my coworker because I was always a show off. I was an arrogant guy, you know. And I did very well in my work, and I got a lot of attention. And just in case you missed it, I just happened to have an extra article on me and boy pointed out there. Arrogant to the bone, you know. And so uh, this kid riding towards me on a bike, we decide to play chicken. And unfortunately, at the last second, we turned, we turned in the same direction and ran this kid over. As he lied bleeding on the hood of my car, I got out of my car with my nightstick and was beating this kid because I thought he was smoking me for an insurance claim. The guy that I was with prevented me from doing that. I pulled this kid off the hood of my car to him off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I pulled this crumpled bicycle from underneath my car and threw that off to the side of the street like a tr piece of trash. I drove back to the bar. I made a remark. I scored 10 points, and I continued on drinking. When I came to the next day, I realized I was in serious, serious trouble, but I didn't think anybody would help me because I was such a creep. You know, I used and abused everybody I came in contact with. You know, if I hung around you, you had something I wanted, you know. I back up a little bit. You know, that story I talk about running on the field, I tell that story for a couple of reasons. One, it's true. <laughs> Second of all, it's the only funny story I got. You know? <laughs> I wasn't a funny guy. I was a liar, thief. Lying, stealing, cheating, violent, stinking, falling down, drunk. That's the type of drunk that I was. And, and like I said, if you, if I hung around you, you had something I wanted. You know, it was just, it just, I was a nasty, ugly person. And besides that, I was a blackout drinker, a major blackout drinker, just from drinking beer. You know, and I would show up at work the next day, or I'd show up at the corner the next day, and the guys from my neighborhood they was telling me off, oh, Bobby, it was a mess, and they would relay the stories from the night before, but I didn't remember. I don't know what to do. I knew I was in trouble, and I knew I, I knew anybody wouldn't help me. I wouldn't help myself, you know, just the shape I was in. So what I did, I got a case of beer, a bottle of liquor, and some other substances, and I checked in the hotel with the intention to consume all this stuff to build up the courage in my life. And three days later, they're knocking on the door of the hotel door to kick me out. And I couldn't shoot myself. At this point, I was suspended from my job. I no longer had access to my weapon. So I walked over and uh, to the window, and I opened up the window, and I was going to jump out. And uh, I was on the fifth floor, and I remembered I was scared of heights, and I didn't want to jump. <laughs> I made 23 jumps in the series. Here I am, you know, you know, they confront your fears. You know, I, I never overcame my fears. I still got a fear of heights, you know, 23 jumps, and it was just nuts. But I couldn't jump. I, I just didn't want to do that. So the only other tool that left in my room was uh, I went in the bathroom. I filled the bathtub up with water, and I had a blow dryer. And I was going to pull the blow dryer into the tub to make it appear an accidental electrocution. But every time I would pull a blow dryer into the tub, it would come unplugged. <laughs> because I was about a foot and a half short on cord. So, so I got one foot in the tub and I'm leaning trying to pluck it in. It's just nuts. So, and it was, it's like the scene out of that Woody Allen movie where he couldn't even kill himself, you know. And, but I never want to forget the pain I was in that day. So the only other thing I had left was my car. So I got my car, I took one last spin through the neighborhood, I started up at the Falls Bridge, I come down the East River Drive. And that's a winding road along the Schuylkill River in Philadelphia. And I decided it would end my life in an automobile accident. 
And as I was coming down the drive, it's a mid, it's like a Tozer, it's Wednesday because it's Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, it's Wednesday, it's like 10 o'clock in the morning. And thank God because there wasn't that much traffic rush hours over because I would have killed somebody. And that was my initial attention was to go on the oncoming traffic and end my life. But I realized if I would do that, more than likely I would cause somebody else to lose their life. And something hit me at this point where I didn't want to hurt anybody else. And it just seemed that I just had that, that vicious cycle. If I came in contact with you, unfortunately, turmoil was in the wake, you know. And I don't want to hurt anybody else. So I decided I would wrap myself around a tree and I switched back lanes. And then I just lose it. I started crying and I'm hungover, I'm cooped and, you know, all these things going on. And uh, I'm surprised I didn't get into an accident because I had no control and I now know my higher power was looking out after me. But back then I didn't know it. I finally pull over at the end of the Easter Drive, it's Boathouse Road. And I sat behind the wheel of my car and I cried like a baby for about 10 minutes. I reached into my glove box and there was my wallet and inside the wallet was that, that newspaper article that I talked about that I clipped out of Dell News six weeks before. You know, and I don't want to make me clip it out. I now know it was God, but back then I didn't know. So I called, I went over to the phone. It's no longer there, but it's one of those glass and clothes phone booths that's outside the last boathouse. I dialed the phone, the number up. I spoke to the lady, went into the phone. I spoke to this woman like I spoke to no one in my life before. I told her the truth. And I lied to everyone, you know. I mean, I lied so often, I, I thought it was reality. I couldn't uh, differentiate between the two. So I told this woman everything that was going on in my life, and God bless her, she listened patiently. Because when I finally came up for air, she said, listen, she said, why don't you drive over to Hahnemann Hospital and somebody be waiting to talk to you? I said, okay. So I got my car, took my, I took a, it's like a five-minute drive from where I was at, I went over to the hospital, and it was waiting for me. And they moved me to the 11th floor of the psychiatric unit. And I spent about three or four days there before they finally got me stabilized and calmed down. And from there, I got transferred to the VA hospital out in West Philadelphia. And I spent about six weeks in their flight deck. And then I got transferred to the VA hospital out in Coastal. And I spent a number of weeks in their flight deck before they put me into an alcohol and drug ward. When I pulled over and made that phone call that day, Alcoholics Anonymous was the furthest thing from my mind. I didn't think I had a problem with booze. I really didn't. I was a beer drinker. I thought maybe it was my short use of other substances. Maybe if I let that stuff alone. I got this stress issue they're talking about. I got this from my job. I got this from the service. I got this mental illness. My mom had it, so I inherited it, you know. Maybe the fact that I'm a mom or the neighborhood I lived in. It's all this other stuff. It's all these other things, but it couldn't be alcohol because I was a beer drinker, you know. And I was, for the most part, very successful in my job. You know, I, it couldn't be that. I got put in this alcohol and drug ward at the VA hospital. I'm there maybe about a half hour. I make my way into the day room, and up on the day room wall, they have the big window shades of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. I go up to the steps. I zip through them. I got half of them done. <laughs> I, I see the amends. I said, that doesn't apply to me. They're screwed. You know, we, we just don't do that, you know. But what happened later that night, two men came up and carried the message, and I would later find out that they were part of the treatment facility committee. I didn't know that then. And the moment that the speaker said something about his background that I didn't like, couldn't relate to, or just didn't identify with, I would immediately tune him out. I was too busy listening to the messenger but, and not the message. You know, and I, to be honest, I'm better than most of these guys anyway, because all these guys in the VA, I mean, they've all been locked up, and, you know, I, I wasn't bad. It, it's amazing, you know, a couple months away from the situation, you kind of forget. But what bothered me the most was at the end of the meeting, everyone got in a circle and said the Lord's Prayer. If this is what you people are about, I don't want nothing to do with you, you know? Forget about it. It was, it was nonsense. It was out. See, the reason being, 
I talk about my mom. My mom had a history of mental illness, you know, and she was like a fundamentalist, you know, with the church, and there was candles and pictures and radio programs and TV programs and all types of stuff. She thought she got caught up in the charismatic movement. She thought she could speak in tongues and all types of other things. I was in high school. I was probably just 15 years old. I came home from school one day. I'm in the house for about 10, 15 minutes. Just something's off. I finally come across my mother. I found her. She had slit her wrist. I remember when I found her, she looked up at me. She said, Bobby, help me. And I looked down at her and said, that's a good for you. And I walked out of the house. And I got an older guy to go to the state store to get me a quart of wine. And I remember I stayed out and I drank the wine. I came home later that night. And my father had told me what happened. I acted surprised. I said, oh, yeah, how about that? So that happened when I was 15. I didn't get sober until I was 27. So that's 12 years of hating God. And I know there's strong words, but that's what that was, was a hate. And it would be a couple, another couple years before I would address this, you know. So I broke away from the group and would not say the prayer because I don't want nothing to do with God. So I got time for me to get out of the VA hospital and a nurse took a liking to me. I don't know why, you know. She must have been an Al-Anon. And, and, and I, I, please, I don't say that facetiously, please. I do not say that because she was a wonderful lady. Uh, because she thought through my garbage because all that was, that was just a front. You know, I had this tough guy mentality. And she came up to me. She said, you know what? It's the best piece of advice I got. She said, the only way you're going to make it, you're going to need to go to AA meetings. And I need to tell you, the VA hospital helped me a lot with a lot of things I had going on. But that's the best, best piece of advice I got. And that's where I got my recovery. I got in an Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, go to AA meetings, and she told me where a couple were at, because I, I told her where I lived. And uh, so I went to meetings every single day. I would get there late, and I would leave early. I don't drink coffee, so I don't make it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't smoke cigarettes, so I don't empty ashtrays. <laughs> I didn't take your phone numbers. Most of you were screwballs. I didn't like you anyway. <laughs> the only time I got my hand up was to take a shot at somebody. If I walked into a big book meeting or a speaker uh, or a step meeting that was strictly by accident, I would leave at the break. I had something more important to do. God forbid a tradition meeting rules. I need to tell you my line of work. We love enforcing them, but we don't like to follow them. They're for other people. <laughs> and that's what I saw as a tradition. So that I was out there until another reason to leave. I was interested in war stories. And in the moment that the speaker said something about his background that I didn't like, couldn't identify with, it just didn't relate to, I would immediately tune him out. Again, too busy listening to the messenger, but... You know, not the message. But I made meetings, and I was nutty, unbelievable. I'm sober, uh, I guess, eight or nine months. I'm sitting in this bar because they sell real good roast beef, right? <laughs> and I'm drinking seltzer out of a rock glass. And, uh, you know, and uh, I mean, the, back then I could tell you that's the truth, but the truth was, again, I was arrogant, you know, because towards the end of my drinking, the, the, the trouble I got in, I got a lot of negative publicity, but I'm back. You know, and I want you to know that I'm back, and that's why I was in the bar showing off. So I'm drinking seltzer, and a couple guys from my neighborhood come in, and they give me a hard way to go. They're breaking my stones, making comments and things like that. One thing led to another, and I just, just had enough, and I stood up, and I punched this guy right in the face with a rock glass. Man, I cut him. He bled like a pig. Cut him severely. And so the police came, and the guys who handled the job, they knew me, and they cut me a break, and they let me go. And that's where I learned my lessons about people, places, and things. I had no business being there no matter what. And the fact is, I have since found a place that sells real good roast beef without being in that type of environment. You know? <laughs> I was uh, sober just under a year, and all the men in the group were going on a retreat. And they kind of tricked me, because you know how we can trick new people. They came up to me, and they said, uh, Bobby, are you working this weekend? And before I had a chance, you know, I should have said yes. 
But, you know, you, for the, to lie, you need, like, to formulate the lie. And they come up to me and caught me off guard, and I said, no. They said, good, we're going to retreat, and we're taking you. And see, now my group, they held hands also and said the Lord's Prayer, and I wouldn't participate in the prayer. So they signed me up, and they, they took me on this retreat. Now, I need to tell you about these old guys. Man, I, I really liked these guys. I wanted to be part of these guys, but, man, I hated them. I wouldn't talk to them, but I really wanted them to, to like me. I was just nuts. So I went on this retreat with them because, again, the, the need for me to be accepted outweighed anything else. And I got this big knot in my stomach, and I can't tell them about my mom, you know. I mean, what would they think about me? So uh, the closer we're getting to the retreat, the more uncomfortable I'm getting. So we get up to the retreat house, we unload the bags. I'm there about 10, 15 minutes, and I run across the retreat master. As soon as he saw me, he smiled. He's my disciplinarian from high school. <laughs> but not only that, but he was a long-time member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he just smiled. He said, man, it's good to see you. And he started talking to me, wanted to know how long I was sober, home group, sponsor. I said, no, I don't have a sponsor. So I'm a pretty bright guy. I don't need a sponsor. I didn't tell him that. He said, well, I strongly suggest you get a sponsor. I said, okay. So I asked my roommate to be my sponsor, just in case, should I have ever been questioned again in the future? You know, to catch you off guard. Uh, you know, Bobby, you got a sponsor? Yeah, yeah, he holds you right there. That's my sponsor. And when I would see this guy in meetings, he would smile and wave to me. He said, Bobby, I still got that same phone number. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll give you a call. I never called him. Know what I used to do? I said, oh, you won't believe this guy. He got me doing this. He got doing this. He made me, oh. I made it all up. There was lies. He didn't do anything. He put the hand of up, uh, the hand of AA out there, and I'm the one who slapped it, you know, knocked it away, you know. I was celebrated my year anniversary, and man, I wowed him, knocked him dead, you know. I did, it was amazing. I got done thunderous applause. The lame could walk, the blind saw. It was incredible. <laughs> and he came up, and he patted me in the back and said, man, Bobby, you're doing so good. I lied during my entire deal. You know, in fact, when they told me I was doing good, I felt like a creep. Because of my group, you identified yourself as an alcoholic. They didn't want to hear all that other stuff. And I don't believe I was an alcoholic. I really didn't. I still thought it was my short use of other substances. I got this mental illness from my mom. I got this stress stuff that's talking about from the service, or, you know, from my job. I'm a mummer. It was everything else. It was, I was, in fact, when I told, when I just told my story, a bottle of beer appeared in my head. But you guys don't want to hear that. You want to hear all the quotes. So I quoted all the literature to you. And it was, like I said, they patted me in the back and said, man, you're doing so good. And I was dying inside. And I wanted these guys to like me, and but I was afraid to ask them for help, you know. I was sober 23, 23 months, and I beat another man with a baseball bat. Uh, I forget what step I was working that day. But, <laughs> but I, was, I was crazy. I was crazy as a bed bug, I swear to God. I swear to God, I was making every, I was making regular attendance of meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous, sometimes two or three, depending on what shift I was working, made meetings every single day, and I was dying from untreated alcoholism. I was a liar, thief, and a cheat, you know. I t in my early recovery, my first couple of years, I used to go to a lot of go-go bars, right? But I drank soda, right? I'd get my picture taken, and I would come to the meetings, and I'd pass these pictures around to the old guys, because I thought they would like me. And they would look at the picture, and they would look at me, and they would just shake their head and say, please, kid, please keep coming back. And I thought they was being facetious. I said, all right, I'll keep coming back. Man, I hated the world. You know the, you, the old saying, you can't miss what you never had? Serene people scared the hell out of me. So I would, if it was real calm, I'd have to get my hand up to add some insanity because I was comfortable with insanity. It was nuts. No one asked me to be their sponsor. No one wanted what the hell I had. I didn't carry the message. I carried the disease. I would share these witty stories from the floor, then go get something to drink and go to the men's room and come back to me. The seat would be empty next to me. They'd be sitting on the other side of the room trying to get away from me. 
I swear to God, I had no idea who John Barleycorn was. I was wondering why everybody was blowing this guy's anonymity. I said, you know what? He's really a tough. I said, he's really a tough SOB. I want one tangle with this guy. When I found out who John Barleycorn was, I felt so stupid. But here I was. I was so damn smart. Damn near killed me. Another thing, the truth is, I, I hated everybody, but who I hated the most were the guys behind me getting well before me, because I'm caught up in this time. That's what this is all about. The more time you got, that's, you know, numbers. They, the numbers win. I got three, you got two, I got Trump, I win. We have a little corkboard, first initial, last name, and the date of month on how many years you celebrate. I'm Bobby C. I got two, two years. Joey A. got three years. If Joey picked up a drink, I used to take pleasure in that. I said, good for him. He's out. I move up. I was nuts. I swear I'm not proud of that. But the tr I was crazy as a bed bug. I was nuts. Second anniversary came. I didn't celebrate it. Uh, a month after my second anniversary, 25 months, making regular attendance at meetings in AA. Went to eat my gun. The same pathetic feeling I had 25 months before, but here it was. 25 months before, I was loaded with drugs and alcohol. Here I am, stone cold sober, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to eat my gun. Save till soon, my life was unmanageable, you know? I go to this meeting one night, and there's this guy. His nickname is Troubles. And I need to tell you, that's a hard-earned nickname he had. <laughs> but no one called him Troubles to his face because he was like a scary dude. His name was Bob. And I seen him at a meeting, and he lived in my neighborhood. And now, he was sober a number of years, but you know what? I saw him in my neighborhood, and he had this glow about him. You know, because you could fake the talk, because I did that. I was faking the talk. But, man, this guy had a glow about him. I went up to him afterwards. I said, Bobby, I need some help. I said, would you be my sponsor? Bless you. And he looked at me, he said, you know what, Bobby, I've been watching these past couple of years, I'm sticking my chest out, I figure he likes me, I said, yeah. He says, I need to tell you, he said, you're full of shit. <laughs> and I, I mean, that's not the response I'm looking for. And I look at him, he said, I'm going to be a sponsor under certain conditions. Hey, you're going to go to a big book meeting once a week, you're going to go to a step meeting a week, you're going to go to a men's meeting a week, you're going to get yourself a coffee commitment, you're going to call me every day and you're going to leave them damn women alone. And I'm saying to myself, like, who's he talking to? I got 25 months here. I'm selling the grapevines. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> but what I did, I looked him dead in the eyes. and said, okay, that's what I'm willing to do. And that's the night that I believed that I worked the first three steps because my life was definitely unmanageable. You know, and, you know, if I was powerless, the solution had to be a power greater than myself. And I knew there, uh, there was because, again, I saw these guys coming from behind me, these crazy lunatics, and they were getting better. So I knew that there was a higher power out there. It was just because of my resentment towards God that I was just not willing to embrace this, you know, and that was my own stuff. And the third step, we went back to his house and we got on our knees and we said the third step prayer together. He said, Bobby, there's a big difference between making a decision and making a commitment. And I thought that night that I, I made the commitment to go to any length to get sober, to become an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know what? Uh, it started off the next day, started doing my inventory. Now I didn't want to do one of these because I'm going to meetings and people say, whoa, Easy does it. You don't want to get well too soon. And, uh, keep it simple. You know, they give me all these slogans and they damn killing people. And I know the slogans have a purpose. I really, I'm not knocking them. But I was mistaken as why well. I didn't need to do any work. I just keep it simple, you know. Just, you just don't drink and go to a meeting. And I'm trying to figure out, well, I can just not drink. Why do I need to go to a meeting? Uh, I just nuts. And, but I, I didn't want to do one of these bad because I'm going to meetings and people say, whoa. Heavy stuff there. Wait a year. I'm, I'm over two years. That's how I'm waiting. I'm nuts here. And, I, and the reason I don't want to do it because unfounded fear. That great boogeyman. And I did my inventory. And you know what? It wasn't that tough. Everything I wrote down, I did. 
what was tough was the next step, sharing that with another person. That wasn't happening. So I called my sponsor up. I said, Bobby, I'm going to retreat this weekend. I said, I'm going to do my fifth step with a priest. He said, that's wonderful. He said, when you get done, he said, you stop by my house. And you know how sponsors could be sometimes on the phone with them. And I'm saying, I'm like, what's he deaf? I said, Bobby, I said, maybe you didn't hear me. I said, I heard you. He said, did you hear me? When you got done, he said, you come by my house. And he must have picked up the hesitation. He said, Bobby, this is the deal. He said, I'm so before a while. He said, if I'm supposed to help you change your behaviors and these character defects, I think I need to know what they are. And the truth was, the only reason I want to go with this priest, even though I had like wrote God down on the resentment, just because I had it on the sheet, I still had the resentment. It was still there. The truth was, there were a lot of things I was embarrassed about. And I thought that if I went to the priest, I was covered. You know, no one else would know. Meet him in the lamppost. That would be it, you know. And I had some unfounded fears, you know, and I, which told me I, I wasn't quite done. And I went back because I thought my sponsor would ridicule me. I thought he would pass judgment on me. Or even worse, he would take what I said and break my confidence and tell other people. And like I said, when I went over to his house, I never did my fifth step with a priest. I did my fifth step with Bobby. And uh, they were all unfounded fears. He didn't do any of those things. He didn't pass judgment, didn't ridicule me. In fact, you know what he did? some of his stuff with me which took away the terminal uniqueness that I thought that I had that I was the only guy to do certain things you know and I'll be forever in debt for him you know he helped me tremendously he wound up passing away a couple years later sober a young man in his 50s and he died after a very short illness but man he helped me tremendously so uh, so uh, and uh, the evidence is in front of me, you know, the character defects. I was going to six meetings, the six or seven step meetings, and people talk about character defects. I don't know what the hell they were doing, which should have been a tip-off that I never did my inventory. But uh, once I did my inventory, did I found out, I mean, I knew I was a character when I drank, but I didn't know nothing about character, and I found out when I did my inventory that I had no character whatsoever. And the sixth step, I just, I just had to be willing. And if I didn't have the willingness, I could pray for the willingness. And the seventh step was a prayer, you know. And my sponsor would tell me, he said, Bobby, you need to put legs on those prayers, you know. I know sometimes we like to leave everything at God's feet, but it is a program of action. I can pray all day long. And I, got, I got a laundry list of character defects, too. I could say, please, God, help me be patient, help me be patient. But during the course of my day, if I come across someone and I choose to be impatient and I lash out with sarcasm or something else, that prayer for patience goes right out the window. And I know sarcasm is nothing but anger dressed up. It's also referred to as language of the Irish. But, I mean, that's all it is. Sarcasm is nothing but anger, you know. So uh, I need to put legs on those prayers. And because I didn't burn my fourth step, when I did my fifth step, when I got to my eighth step, half my list was done. But I needed to put more names. And, again, I was one of those guys that would go to meetings as I didn't harm anybody but myself. Right there was a tip-off that I never did my inventory because, like I said earlier, I harmed everybody I came in contact with, you know. And I had become willing, and I did that. And the ninth step, I recommend. And a couple of people, John even talked about it last night. No phone calls and no letters for me because I didn't beat you with a bat through the mail or over the phone, you know. And my, when I wanted to take those measures, my sponsor would say, Bobby, the word would be indirect. It says direct amends, face to face, you know. And I'd like to share two experiences on the ninth step, you know. I was at a meeting like 10, 11 years ago. Uh, it was uh, a meeting up in North Philadelphia. I live in South Philadelphia, and there was this guy that come down the steps that I have not seen since 1977. Now, he was not on my A-step list for any fear, just out of sight, out of mind. I just forgot. But as soon as I saw him, I recognized him. I knew that I needed to have him on my list. So what I used to do, I used to drink with this guy. Or I should say we used to drink at the same bar. I, I wouldn't drink with him. And uh, I would uh, 
whenever I wanted to impress people how tough I was, I would publicly humiliate this guy. I would, and he was much larger than I was, but he just he just wasn't as nuts I was. And uh, he wouldn't respond. And I would verbal abuse, and uh, one day I slapped him, and one day I even spit on him. And I, I don't think you can probably do anything worse than a human being but to spit on someone. It's just the ultimate act of degradation. And so... You know, and I'm not a tough guy, I never was, but I would humiliate this guy to make myself look bigger in other people's eyes. So I see this guy come down the steps, I haven't seen him since 77. And I get introduced and I stand up and I say, my name is Bobby Coyle and I'm an alcoholic. Now I need to tell you why I use my full name. I was very involved in, in service back home in the area, in the inner group, and, and I think all the, a lot of the traditions are somewhat misunderstood, but I think this 11th one is a biggie, you know. And all of a sudden, we get sober, we become like the mafia, and we get all these nicknames, right? There's Red Sweater Jerry and Bucktooth Mary and Frank the Fox and Pepsi George. We get all these nicknames. I don't want no one to know that I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Everyone knew I was a drunk. It was those little telltale signs. They come in the house, come out of their house, and they catch me urinating in their car. <laughs> my girlfriend threw the clothes out the window. I'm coked. I'm slumped behind the wheel of my car. Everyone, the, you know, the cops are at my house. Everyone knows I'm a drunk. All of a sudden, I get sober. I don't want people to know I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? <laughs> Dr. Bob was real clear. He said, when one drunk is anonymous from another drunk, that is a violation of the 11th tradition. He said that anonymity is spiritually inspired and secrecy is feared inspired. I mean, what happens 3 o'clock in the morning and you're going to feel like drinking and you want to call information? I'd like to have Frank the Fox's phone number. You know what I'm up. Or you want to go visit one of these beloved old-timers in the hospital and say, I'm here to say, what room's Bucktooth Mary in? I mean, if they got a nutwood, they're going to admit you, you know? The 11 traditions real clear. For me, no television with full picture, no radio with full name, same thing with the newspaper, no full picture, no full name, and stating that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the 11 tradition. You know what? However, I have no right whatsoever to break anybody else's anonymity. I just choose to use my full name because I've been very involved in the area. And, you know, you're not going to find a Bobby C. in the phone book. You will find Robert Ignatius Benedict Coyle III, but you won't find no Bobby C. So that's why I use my full name, you know. So let me get off that soapbox. Mm -hmm. So I see this guy, and I, you know, I look him dead in the eye. I say, my name is Bobby Cool. I'm an alcoholic. And so he nodded. He recognized me. Then, I guess we clean up, we get sober. And when I got done speaking, I turned to him. His name was Bob also. No, it was Bob. It wasn't Bob also. I'm, just, I'm not breaking his anonymity. <laughs> his name also was Bob. And I said, Bob, I said, I'd like to take this moment to, you know, make amends to you. Now, my sponsor told me making amends is much more than saying I'm sorry. Because for me, there was two words that didn't mean squat. It's about righting the wrong, you know. And for me, the financial amends are easy. If I robbed you, I reach in my pocket, I give you money back or go on a payment plan. But what about the psychological, the emotional damage we cause people? How do I make amends for that? So I told, this, I told the group what I used to do to him, and I asked Bob to forgive me. And I said, as long as I stay sober, I hope I never treat another human being that way, the way I treated you. Well, you know what? He came up and he hugged me and he forgave me. Powerful stuff, you know. So at the end of the meeting, we start talking. I said, Bob, you know, I haven't seen you. What's going on? He said, well, Bobby, he said, I'm sober three years now. Now, my arrogance, I'm sober for a while. He's sober for a while. I think that I ought to know him, or he should at least know me because of my service in Alcoholics Anonymous. Again, arrogance, right? And so he said, well, I'm li now living up in Roxborough, which is like northwest Philadelphia. This meeting's in the north, and I'm living in south. And so uh, he says, the reason I came here tonight was I was fl flipping through the meeting list, and for some reason this meeting jumped out at me. I wanted to go to a different meeting. 
Now, I need to tell you, we had 1,600 meetings a week. We got a pretty thick directory. And he's sober three years, and he says, and I'm sober a number of years, and he says that this meeting jumped out at me. I believe that God put that guy in my path that night, and I had two options. I can make amends, or I could do what I used to do, pretend I didn't know you. People come up to me, and this is one of the benefits of having eight brothers and sisters in a short period of time. There seems to be a strong resemblance. So people come up to me and, like, accuse me. I say, oh, you got me confused. You're talking about my brother Joey, not me. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I could have done, but I didn't. It says wherever possible, not whenever. Whenever denotes time, and for us it's never the right time because we're too busy easy, doesn't it? It's wherever. <laughs> it's wherever possible. God put that guy on my path, and I made the amends, and he forgave me, and that's an incredible experience, you know? The flip side, my home group for a while was the Stepping Stones group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm in a business meeting. I make a motion. It was definitely for the betterment of AA since I made it. <laughs> my boy Freddie didn't, didn't agree with me and my motion. Not only did it not get, it, it, not, it didn't get passed, it didn't even get seconded after a brief discussion. I said, man, and I couldn't believe Freddie did this because I grew up in a neighborhood and there were just certain rules. And one of the things, right, wrong, or indifferent, you always back your boy. It was just, it was a neighborhood, it was, everyone knew it. It was a formal policy. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe this. And uh, I was mad at him. And I would come to meetings and there would be four men sitting at the table. I would say, hi, three of them, and I would completely ignore Freddie. I'm at work one day. One of my coworkers came up to me. He's in the program. He said, Bobby, he said, Freddie Wheels is outside. He wants to take care of some sort of stuff. I peeked out the window. I said, you know, I said, tell him to take his fat ass down to City Hall. He needs to go down there to take care of that business. A few weeks after that, that same co-worker called me up at home. He said, Bobby, he said, Freddie Wheels died last night. And he said, the reason I'm calling you is because he always spoke so highly of you. Now, here was a very good friend of mine. And the truth is, I can't tell you what that motion was about. And uh, he was put in my path numerous, numerous times. And I had opportunity to make amends, and I chose not to. And I paid the price for that. And I've been praying for Freddie ever since. But when he said, my, when that co-worker said, he always spoke so highly of you. You know, man, just dug. So that's two experiences on the ninth step where I made the amends and I reaped the rewards and I didn't and I paid the price. The tenth step for me is nothing but four through nine on a regular basis. Now, if I'm going to stand up here and tell you I do a tenth step on a daily basis, that wouldn't necessarily be true. But I'm fairly consistent. And I used to say, well, you know what? If I'm not doing the tenth step, I'm the only one who knows it. That's not true either. Because, <laughs> because for me, it's easy to you know, get back in that nitwit mode. And when I'm a nitwit, that's contagious because uh, people have come across it during the course of the day. They're affected by ins my insanity. But like I said earlier about uh, you can't miss what you never had, and I never missed that peace of mind. Well, now what? I now miss that peace of mind. I don't like to be in insane situations. And the nice thing about working the steps is that I now, once I get knocked off the beam, I now know what I need to, go, to do to get back on the beam. I can't stay sober on yesterday's sobriety, just like I can't stay drunk on yesterday's load. And I've been on some good loads that lasted a couple of days, but sooner or later you needed to drunk again to maintain that load. And the same thing, I can't stay sober on yesterday's sobriety, you know. It's, it's contingent on my maintenance, on my spiritual maintenance, you know. It's a daily reprieve. The 11 step through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact. I do pray and meditate on a regular basis. And you know what, I'm not going to say how I do it because I certainly don't want to insult anyone because this is a spiritual program and not religious program. But I just need to let you know that it's a very big part of my program. I do it on a daily basis, man, and it reaps tremendous rewards, you know. And it tells me what I'm praying for and why I'm doing it. The 12th step says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result, that's the result. 
we tried to carry this message. And sometimes I forget that about that word try, you know. I want to carry the message, and when I get done, I want to backhand you with the book, especially if you've been in and out for a while, because I want the message to sink in. <laughs> and I know I can't do that. You know, it's, it's often reminded to me that we're responsible for the effort, not the outcome. And sometimes I want to, you know, I get frustrated with that also. But the most important part of this 12th step is to practice these principles in all my affairs. I'm only in a meeting an hour and a half a day. But what about the other 22 and a half hours? What about the time of my job? What about the time of my family? The time in my neighborhood for me where it's tough to stay sober. Like in my neighborhood, there's a strange phenomenon that things fall off of the back of trucks. People are selling things at, at tremendous discounts. It's just, it's just like one of those neighborhoods, you know. There's no, no, no street crime because there tends to be like another uh, organization there that kind of overlooks things. But, but everyone got an angle. And you know what? And once I get involved in these angles, you know, I can't do that because if I can justify that, I can justify other things. Before not, I can justify not having a drink because it's been a while since I had a drink. And I, I don't do that today, you know. And it, that just for me, that's what I need to do because I tried to do that a couple of times. And every time I try to cut the corners, I pay the price. And every time I pay the price, I kick myself in the ass. It's damn. It's when are you going to learn from this? So I try to do the right thing on most days. And for the most days, I'm pretty good with that, you know. I then got involved in service, you know. And I start learning about the traditions. I joked about them before, but you know what? I now love the traditions. The traditions are to the groups what the steps are to the individuals. The steps are how it works, and the traditions are why it works. And the traditions allow us to be wrong, but being wrong just for the sake of being wrong is arrogance, and that's, you know, something that we cannot afford. You know, Bill Wilson said it would be arrogant if he thought that AA would be around forever. He said if it would fall from within, uh, if it would fall at all, it would fall from within. And these traditions are based on experience, just as the steps are. And I love the traditions. I got involved in the, the service in the area, and um, I was off. I was doing the fish track. I thought I was going to... I was going to become something. I know I was. And in November of 1993, uh, as on my way up, I got diagnosed with cancer. And it was a pretty fluke way I found out. Make a long story short, I went to run the Boston Marathon. I was, try I was training for the marathon. I wound up getting sick. Well, something was, just wasn't right. I went to get, a, a, uh, get checked out. And I got diagnosed with lung cancer. Now, I never smoked in my life. A little reefer. But that was for a short period of time. But I never, to this day, I never smoked, you know. So I went to get a second opinion. And when it got confirmed, man, I, I was blown for a loop. I, I just got amazed. I was amazed because I was sober for a while. And I when do you think I handled this well? Because I didn't. I was on the pity pot, wine me, this and that. And I started going through treat, treatment. I, you know, I had came out of radiation. And I went in remission. And I wound up getting sick again. And they wound up removing the lower left lobe of my lung. And I was really sick there for a bit. And you know what, this was really the only part of my sobriety where I couldn't make meetings. I just didn't have the strength. And people start coming to my house and carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now you're looking at a liar, thief, and a cheat. I took my entire life. The only thing I gave was heartache and misery. And people were coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, come to my house and carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now I know my doctors did a pretty good job, but I'm a firm believer is the person Alcoholics Anonymous just helped me tremendously, you know. And I love service. Service takes a lot of different forms, you know. But our preamble says our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help the other alcoholic achieve sobriety. If I'm only staying sober, not helping the other alcoholic, that's half measures and half measures of all this nothing. You've got to give it away in order to keep it. But on the flip side, you can't give away what you don't have. That's why no one asked me to be their sponsor in early sobriety because no one wanted what the hell I had. <laughs> and 12-step, it takes a lot of different forms. You know, I mean, that we have our standard 12-step committees. You have corrections and treatment facilities and PI and CPC and 
that's CPC for the newcomer, not PCP. Cooperation, <laughs> CPC. Yeah. And there's a lot of different things. And people have time, they put conferences on, and, and you know, some of us are real good with organization skills, some people are good with checkbooks. Some of us should never ever be allowed near a checkbook. But I am a firm believer. I'm a firm believer that everyone in this room has a gift. You just need to find out what your gift is. It may be different than the person sitting next to you, but the gift you got is unique. You gotta carry the message. I mean, it's our responsibility. In fact, we even, you know, the conference many years ago came up with that. I am responsible when anyone, anywhere reaches out for help. I want the hand of AA to always be there. And for that, I'm responsible. I can't rely on you or you or you. You know, if I see a new guy in my home group, when, when my, my sponsees advice, that they come up to me and I haven't seen them in a while and I see a new guy, so go over and talk to him. Because these guys already got my phone number. This guy doesn't know who we are. Let's go over and talk to him. And I make regular attendance at meetings. I'm there six, seven times a week, you know, because, and, you know, I may think they only may need a couple of meetings a week, but I no longer go for myself. I go to carry the message. And the, and the new people don't know that I live at 707 Sears Street. I go to the meetings, and that's where I find the newcomers because that's my responsibility to carry the message. And besides, I'd love going to meetings. It's no longer the hour and a half penance I thought it was. I, you know, I now, even on my day off, I may even hit two or three. I love going to AA meetings. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, 1994, was it 94? Yeah, no, nah, probably 92. I'm in, a, I'm in a meeting in Mexico. I, I'm the only English-speaking person in this meeting, and I believe that I speak fluent Spanish. These, I could tell by the reaction of these people, they had no idea what the hell I was saying. <laughs> now, my, my Spanish consisted of like Dame Pistola. Like, I, I worked in the barrio for 10 years. Like, give me your gun, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so I thought I could speak Spanish. I'm speaking Spanish. I could just tell by the baffled look. They had no idea what the hell I was saying. So I switched over to English, and they still don't know what the hell I was saying. But you know what? The language of the heart. And you know what? After the meeting, they came up and they hugged me. And I could tell who the new guy was by their pain in their face. And I can tell who the old timer was by the surrender in their face. Incredible experience. They may not have understood, but you know what, man? They understood perfectly, and that's incredible. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I really do. Uh, you know what? Uh, one of my favorite sayings in the big book says, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. If the newcomer could say new joy in our existence, they won't want nothing to do with us. Now, obviously, I just paraphrase that last line. <laughs> Bill was much more eloquent than I. But you get the point. I love having fun. Laughter is my favorite sound in the AA room, you know. And I was incapable of laughing in, in early sobriety. You know, towards the end of my drinking, I couldn't even shave anymore. I would get a couple strokes with the razor, and I would have to put it away because I actually had this vision in the mirror that an evil spirit was going to take a razor and make me cut my throat. That's the way it was towards the end of my drinking, you know. Uh, we absolutely insist on enjoying life, you know. I, I referred to this a couple times. I am a lifelong mummer. Now, a mummer is, uh, I, it's really tough to describe, but what it is, it, it's a parade in Philadelphia we knew, do on New Year's Day, and it dates back to the late uh, 17th century. And then it was just got nuts throughout the years with the drinking and the shooting, and, you know, you guys can identify with that. So, uh, so in 1901, the city formally organized it, and that's when we had the first organized parade. Just uh, They went to organize the mayhem. And what it is, it's, it's a bunch of guys in sequins, feathers, and, you know, we get in the middle of the street and we dance. And now I've done a fifth step, so I can tell you all that stuff, but it's a blast. It's, a, it's a, like a combination between, like, the Mardi Gras and the full money. It's just, a, it's a blast. <laughs> But uh, it's a big part of my, you know, it's, I'm a third generation, I'm a third generation mama. It's a big part of my life. 
<laughs> so 12 years ago, I'm at a midnight meeting and I'm telling my story. I'm a lifelong mama and a kid came up to me afterwards. He said, listen, would you be interested in watching the parade this year? I said, man, you're out of your mind. People, placing things. I got no business being down there. He said, you don't understand. He said, we got a group called the 12 Steppers. Sober mummers. I mean, th that's an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the last 11 years, I got to participate in the mummers parade, which is a big part of my family, a big part of, of what I am. And I tell people, you know, uh, the only thing I love being more than a mummer is being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I just love it. it it's a blast. Now, if you figured sobriety could hit Broad Street on New Year's Day in Philadelphia, it's just amazing. Now, once we get to City Hall at the end of the parade, we do a head count to make sure no one got pulled into the crowd. It was an incredible experience. Three years ago, 1999, our brigade came in first place. First time ever that, that I came nowhere out. It's amazing. It's the longest continuous parade in the country. Now, I know people want to dis debate about the Mardi Gras, but it's not as long. Like, you spread it over three days, but our parade goes about 12, 13 hours. There's 30,000 of us. It's just nuts. So uh, this past year, I, I marched in my 34th parade. It, it's a blast. It's something I've always done. Now, when I, I first got sober, I, had to, I stopped. But after a couple of years, we started the Sober Mummers Brigade. And it's just a blast. And again, that message was for the newcomer. If you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, you think your life is over, man. You're great and mistaken. Whatever you did drunk, you could do stone cold sober. You could be better at it. But most of all, you could remember it. It's just a blast. <laughs> I was, uh, I guess, uh, almost uh, finished up with this uh, a little over uh, almost seven months ago in a couple of days, uh, the world kind of changed, you know. I go up to New York fairly often because it's fairly close to me. I'm in Manhattan. It's about an hour and a half away from my house by car. And I go up to the general service office on a fairly regular basis. And whenever I have friends come in, I take them up there. And it was back in August. Uh, they called me up. And uh, one of the meetings, I turned up there and they said, Bobby, we have a couple openings. We'd like you to come up in September. I said, fine. I said, what do you have? They said, well, we have the 4th and the 11th. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll come up on the 4th because I was on vacation. Labor Day weekend, I was with Sandy. Sandy Beach and I were in San Francisco. I flew back to Philadelphia on Monday, Labor Day, which was the 3rd, and Tuesday was the 4th. So I went up, uh, went up there early, hung out, had lunch, went to the meeting, had dinner, and had, had a great time. And then the following week, we all know what happened there. And uh, two of the guys that I had dinner with... Uh, uh, were killed in the towers. I was a uh, very good friendly, uh, very extremely close friends with uh, Father Mike, uh, who I attended many conferences with, uh, many workshops with, uh, and uh, it was just an incredible experience. And two days later, I got called up there. Uh, each city has what they call like a SISM team, critical incident stress management. New York has two, but due to the sheer magnitude of this incident, they had to activate teams from the rest of the country. So. I wound up going up there on the 13th and spent uh, four days up there, and it was just an incredible experience. Now, the meeting that I was at on the 4th that was obliterated on the 11th was back open on the 18th, you know. And now there were a lot of meetings that were closed for several days that lost their spot. But what it was, it was the outpouring of love and people calling the general service office and letting people know, like, you can meet here, you can do things like that. See, I'm always amazed, unfortunately, that you see this good to come out of tragedies. And, and it's just not an event like that. I remember a number of years ago, the great flood up in North Dakota. And a year later, I got invited to go to a conference up there. And I remember talking to the guys, well, what did you guys do? Because many meetings, the whole town of Grand Forks was underwater. And all, what they did, they came, all the groups came together and they had one group. 
And so when I see these tornadoes and hurricanes, the first thing I, I always wonder, I said, what's going on in Alcoholics Anonymous in that community? How are those people getting through that? In fact, my host in North Dakota, former delegate, wonderful guy, his parents were swept away in the floods, and he, he, got, he got through that without picking up a drink, you know. But what happened up there, it was just incredible, you know. And I, was, I went to Father Mike's funeral that Saturday, and I couldn't get in because I had all the dignitaries, but I was hanging outside. They had the mass on the speakers. And I ran into about, about seven, eight people from Alcoholics Anonymous, and he asked me what I was doing up there, and I said I was up here working. So they got to take me to a meeting, you know, and just... I say that because regardless, whatever goes on, you can get through that without picking up a drink. The same thing when I first got diagnosed with the cancer. I may have had an excuse to go out and get loaded, but I didn't have a reason to go get loaded. You know, I made enough meetings, and I've seen some men and women go through some terrible things through no fault of their own, and they got through that incident without picking up a drink. You know, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous promises you. You know, I get uncomfortable when, AA, when people say, hey, that doesn't promise you anything. Hey, it promises you many, many things. But they're, in, they're the intangibles you can't put a price on. They talk about some of the promises that we read last night, you know, you know uh, that, that Cliff mentioned, you know. Uh, but there's others. There's real friendship. There's a peace of mind. There's a serenity, you know. There's other things that I was always chasing, drinking, you know. I'm glad I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. It's... Uh, you know, when, when I started off sharing today, I said I never fit in. I would always lie and compromise my principles. Well, I now found a place where I fit in. I feel comfortable in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't have to lie or compromise my principles or convictions to be liked. In fact, in some circles, that doesn't make me popular because we don't we want to soften the message from the new guy or we want to do this and do that because we want to be liked. Well, when I start compromising the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm doing more harm than I'm doing good. So I kind of hit guys right between the eyes. I try to do it with tact and love, but I still got to hit them right between the eyes because, you know, we're dealing with people's lives. I'm glad I'm sober. I thank the committee for allowing me the privilege of participating in an AA meeting. That's all I got. Thank you.